In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we read from Matthew. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like... And then he told them that story about men working, under, working hard under the hot sun, harvesting grapes. And last Sunday's lessons, both the epistle and the gospel, reminded us of the grace of God. But they also reminded us that to follow Jesus, to be his disciples, is to actively and purposely pursue the discipline of grace. The Lord pours out his grace freely on his people. But we've got to put our hands out to receive it. He graciously provides the manna for today. But we must gather it. He offers us his grace at his table. But we must come and put out our hands to take the bread. We must come and open our mouths to drink the wine. And of course, even in that, there's a mystery. Because even the discipline, we pursue, with the, the discipline with which we pursue God's grace, even that discipline is a grace itself that comes from God as a gift. So last week, grace is a discipline. Now today, we continue to prepare for the season of Lent, and we hear Jesus tell another story. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like... Except, of course, today we're listening to St. Luke, and that's not how he introduces Jesus' parables. That's Matthew's thing. But Jesus could very well have launched into his story just that way. Because like, like last week's parable, today's parable is again a story about Israel, about the people of God. And so Luke says that a great crowd had gathered, people coming from all the surrounding towns and villages, and Jesus spoke. And he said, a sower went out to sow his seed. And and immediately, I think these people who knew the Old Testament inside and out and backwards and forwards so much better than we do, I think they knew right away, at least on the surface, what this story was about. Because the seed, that's the remnant, that's the faithful and true Israel. As Jesus began his story, people would have been thinking about passages from the prophets, passages like Isaiah 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, the Lord says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. As surely as the rain falls on that grass and causes it to grow, his word will go out and accomplish what he wants it to do. And Isaiah goes on and says, For you, the the response to this, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. 
The Lord will send out his word. The people will hear it. Even nature itself will rejoice. And it will make a name for the Lord. It will establish his reputation. Even the mountains and hills will sing his praises. So this is a song of God's new creation breaking into the dark sadness of the world, breaking into its sin and its idolatry. And most importantly, all of this Isaiah wrote shall make a name for the Lord. People will hear and see and know the faithfulness of the God of Israel and they will believe and come to him to give him glory. So everyone listening to Jesus knew all about sin and idolatry and darkness and sadness. They lived it. They lived it every day. Their ancestors had been unfaithful to the Lord, so he disciplined them and let them be taken into exile. And even though the exile was technically over, it wasn't, not really. Their ancestors came back to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the city and they rebuilt the temple five centuries before. But the Lord's presence had never returned. And the Lord's voice had been silent all that time too. No prophets. And they were ruled by pagan Gentiles, first Greeks, then Romans. God was supposed to be their king, not Caesar. Theirs was a world of thorns and briars, and they cried out to the Lord to hear and to deliver just as their ancestors had done from their slavery in Egypt. That's what Jesus' story is about. A sower, the sower, going out to sow his seed, to do something, to accomplish something, to change things, to make his name great so that the world will take notice. But Jesus says, as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Again, it's Israel's story in a nutshell, or a basket of seed. But Israel's story was never meant to end in exile. Everybody knew, and Isaiah had proclaimed that the Lord's word does not return void, that it accomplishes what he meant for it to accomplish. So one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would fill the earth. So there has to be more to his word than being eaten by birds or being burned up under the hot sun. The Lord would surely set things including his own people, he would set things to rights just as he'd always promised. Someday the thorns and briars and all the sad darkness that had come into the world would come to an end. And so Jesus' story goes on. He said, but some of the seed fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And Luke says, Jesus called out to the people, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I think much of the story made sense to them. They knew the players. They knew the imagery. They knew the prophets. They heard the hope in the story. The Lord would do what he said. He would fix this broken world. He would fix his broken people. There was a remnant left in Israel. People like Simeon who met Jesus at the temple when they took him just after he was born. 
And he said, my eyes have finally seen what God had promised. There were those who know. But how was Jesus saying anything that Isaiah hadn't said already? How did the people are thinking, how does this relate to him? Even the disciples had to ask, well, what does this mean? And so Jesus explains in beginning in verse 11, he says, now this is the, the, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And I think they already knew this. They knew the prophets too well to miss it. The seed is the word of God, but the seed is also the people of God. And those two were always inextricably linked together because they knew that God's word creates God's people. And so Jesus went on. He says, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. And he says, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, and receive, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So again, think of Israel's history. The Lord spoke over and over and over and over, and he called his people to repentance and to faith. In many cases, his word fell on deaf ears. Some people, despite all the past faithfulness of the Lord that they could look back to, they just found no interest in him. Some people heard the word of the Lord, and they repented, and they believed. But then when hard times came, their faith shriveled up like rootless seedlings on a hot day. Instead of trusting in the Lord, they put their trust in horses and chariots, or in foreign kings, or in false foreign gods. Other people heard, but they were just too concerned with the concerns of today to be worried about tomorrow or anything bigger than their needs right now. There were rich people who were so intent on holding on to their wealth and powerful people so intent on holding on to their power that they simply couldn't be bothered with the Lord, at least not in this way. And there were other people who had fought their way to the top all on their own, and they didn't see any need to hear the Lord. They might hear the Lord speak and say, oh, that's nice, but they didn't see any reason to take it to heart because they didn't think they needed anything. A lot of people were just too invested in the systems of the present age to have any interest in the age to come. In fact, some were downright frightened by the thought. The good news was a source of hope to a lot of people, but to everybody sitting on the top of the world in in the present age, it meant upset and loss and judgment. King Herod was willing to murder the babies in Bethlehem to keep it from happening. The Sadducees were willing to hand Jesus over to the Romans if it meant stopping this revolution of the word. And that points to another of Jesus' tellings of this story. Because this wasn't the only time Jesus told this story, and this wasn't the only way he told it. If we turn forward a few chapters to Luke chapter 20, we read another version of what's more or less the same story. Luke writes, And Jesus began to tell tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that, they could, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? 
I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not! But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Notice the similarities with the other story. Three times the man sent a servant to claim what belonged to him, and three times the servant was rejected. Like the hard-packed path, like the rocky soil, like the thorny ground on which the seed was sown, like the way God's people rejected and abused his prophets. But the word of the Lord does not return void. And so the man sent his own son. And even though the wicked tenants threw him out and killed him, this is how the Lord finally accomplishes his purpose. This is the key to those words, the kingdom of heaven is like. The son will be rejected. And here Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, which everybody would have known just as well as they knew Isaiah 55. The rejected son is that stone rejected by the builders, the one that nobody wants, the one that doesn't seem to be shaped the right way, the stone that looks worthless and and rejected by the builders, amazingly ends up becoming the cornerstone. The stone that ends up becoming the center, the basis, the foundation of everything, of God's new age and God's new creation. And that imagery from Daniel, that stone will remake everyone who falls on it, will give them new life, but will crush, will fall in judgment on those who reject it. The word of the Lord will not return void. So back to today's parable, Jesus says in verse 15, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is the remnant, the faithful and true Israel. These are they who fell on the stone instead of letting the stone fall on them. These are they who embraced the son when others killed him. And remember what Jesus said about them in the parable itself back in verse 8. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. I think when the disciples finally understood this, it had to have been an incredible source of comfort. As in Israel's past, so in their own day, they saw Jesus, the word himself, come to set Israel to rights. They saw him preaching and ministering the kingdom, and and the word fell. That word fell on hard-packed earth where birds snatched it away. And they saw that word fall on rocky soil where it took root for a little while, but, but died once push came to shove. And they saw people like the rich young ruler eagerly coming to Jesus and asking, what must I do? And then going away sad and empty-handed because they just couldn't bring themselves to let go of their wealth or their power. How could the kingdom of God possibly amount to anything in this world 
in the midst of all the sad darkness and the thorns and the briars, how could it amount to anything when hardly anyone would listen and even fewer would actually take Jesus' message to heart? Even the disciples, for a while, looked like that seed sprouted on rocks when Jesus was crucified. They spent that first Good Friday and Holy Saturday holed up in fear that the authorities would come for them next and thinking, that was it. We thought he was really the Messiah, but he couldn't have been. Their hope was crushed. Their faith shriveled like little plants in the hot sun. But then the empty tomb and then Jesus, risen and made new, Jesus himself appeared to them, new creation beginning, and the seeds sprouted all over again, and hope came flooding back. The word took root. They were surely the seed, even though they were so few. How it would happen, that hundredfold, they didn't know. Nothing made any sense by any standards they knew. And so after Jesus' ascension, they went back to Jerusalem. He told them, wait for me. So they waited and they prayed. And on Pentecost, the Lord poured his spirit into them. And then it all made sense. The stone that the builders rejected really was the cornerstone of this new creation at its new temple. And it made sense now that God's word would not return void because the word himself had come. Not only to proclaim the kingdom, but to die and rise again to defeat the old powers of sin and death. And then he sent God's own spirit to indwell this new people, to give them this gift of faith, to fill them with love and to turn their hearts to God. This is how God's word would accomplish what he purposed. There's no way God would send his word incarnate to die and it would not do anything. This is how it happens. So in fulfillment of his promise, the Lord backed everything up with his own power. And on Pentecost, that little group of disciples saw the seed take root. Luke writes in Acts 2 that about 3,000 were added to their number that day and that the trend continued day after day. As Jesus said in another parable, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. A little, tiny, tiny little thing. And yet it grows into a great tree and the birds make their nests in it. God's grace at work through the humility of his son and through the humility and weakness of his people. But this amazing, this great thing comes from it. Brothers and sisters, that's the lesson the church reminds us of with today's lessons. Last Sunday, we we were reminded that grace is a discipline. Today, we're reminded to stand humbly before the grace of God. And not just to stand humbly, but to stand in hope-filled faith. The epistle gives us St. Paul's example. He was one of the greatest of the Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin, But when he was met by the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, he gave up everything to be part of this renewed people of God. 
something that he thought was the height of foolishness and blasphemy just the day before. And things, at least by worldly standards, things did not go very well for Paul. He poured himself into kingdom ministry with the hope of God's future before him. Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles, to the the pagan world of the Greeks and Romans. And you've got to think, if the disciples were feeling overwhelmed and seeming small and insignificant with this mission to go to Jerusalem and Judea, imagine how overwhelmed Paul must have felt as he went off for the first time as a missionary to the wide world to declare the glories and the faithfulness of the God of Israel made manifest in Jesus to people and to nations who'd never even heard of Jesus and who would question how the God of a conquered people could possibly be worth anything. But Paul went. One tiny, tiny, tiny point of light in the great darkness of the world. And wherever he went... He preached the word, and the Spirit did his work. And little churches full of new believers, little sprouts began popping up to challenge the darkness. Brothers and sisters, that's how it works. Paul knew that it wasn't he who made it happen. It was the grace of God working through the word and working through the Spirit. He was just the messenger He was just the royal herald, called to proclaim the good news that Jesus is Lord. When you watch a movie that takes place in the Middle Ages, you watch one of those Disney movies with Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty, and the herald comes out and blows his horn to announce the king and the queen. Nobody remembers the herald. It's the king and the queen that are important. That's what Paul went out to do. When Paul wrote today's epistle to the church at Corinth, though, they had forgotten this fundamental truth. They heard the good news about Jesus first from Paul, but since then he'd become persona non grata in their church. And I expect Paul wouldn't really have cared so much. I think he was one of those preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten kind of preachers. But the church went wrong, and they needed correction, and they wouldn't listen to him when he brought it. And so he had to write to them again, because other preachers had come to them, and maybe those preachers were better rhetoricians. Maybe they were better looking. Some of them preached a different gospel, and the church became tolerant of sin, and they became less disciplined about grace. And they abused God's, God's spirit, or the, the spirit of God's gifts and used those spiritual gifts for selfish purposes. And they'd forgotten that the gospel is, is empowered not by human means or human power, not by gimmicks or by flash, but by God's word and God's spirit. And so Paul wrote to them, It's 2 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 18 and following. And he says, plenty of people are boasting in human terms. After all, that's what they did. So tongue-in-cheek, he says, why shouldn't I boast as well? 
After all, you put up with fools readily enough, since you are so wise yourselves. You put up with it if someone makes you their slave, or if they eat up your property, or if they overpower you, or give themselves airs, or slap you in the face. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, he says, I'm talking nonsense, remember. He says, I'll boast as well. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of the Messiah? He says, remember, I'm talking like a raving madman here. But are they servants of the Messiah? I'm a better one. I've worked harder. But then here's what it means for Paul. He says, I've worked harder, I've been in prison more often, I've been beaten more times than I can count, and I've often been close to death. Five times I've had the Jewish beating, 40 lashes less one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, I was adrift in the sea for a night and a day, I've been constantly traveling, facing facing dangers from rivers, dangers from brigands, dangers from my own people, dangers from foreigners, dangers in the town, dangers in the countryside, dangers at sea, dangers from false believers. I've toiled and labored. I've burned the candle at both ends. I've been hungry and thirsty. I've often gone without food altogether. I've been cold and naked. Quite apart from all that, I have this daily pressure on me, my care for all the churches. Paul starts out with everything he once had, the sort of things the Corinthians had come to value. But then he reminds them that he has given it all up for the sake of Jesus and the gospel, because the gospel is not empowered by all of those great things. And the gospel went forth not because of how great Paul was, but because he was simply faithful to preach it no matter how much it cost him and because God's word and God's spirit empowered it and transformed the hearts and the minds of the people who heard it and believed. And so he asks in verse 29, he says, Who is weak? And I am not weak. Do you see, that's just it. That's the point they needed to get through their heads. They've allowed the values of the present age, whether that's love of money or love of status or love of power or love of things, they've allowed all this to shape their hearts and minds. And in that, they've forgotten the power of the cross. They have forgotten that the Lord reveals his strength when people are weak, because it's only then that the watching world will see things happen, not by our might and power, but by his I think ultimately they had forgotten, as we are so so prone to forgetting, that the gospel is not ultimately about us, but about the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the God who revealed himself in all his glory by raising Jesus, his Messiah, from the dead. It's never us. Everything we do should point to and reveal the glory and power of God. Even Jesus and everything he did manifested not his own glory, at least not intentionally, but in everything he did, his goal was to glorify his Father and to show his faithfulness and righteousness. And so Paul declares, if I must boast, I will boast in my weaknesses 
They're boasting about the rich preacher who came to town. They're boasting about the preacher who can, who can talk words around Paul with fancy rhetoric. He says, I'll boast in my weaknesses. Brothers and sisters, do you boast in your weaknesses? Paul wrote early in the same epistle. He says, for the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul knew what it was to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. It is so easy to be swept up with the values of the world around us and to think, on the one hand, that when things go well for the church, when our numbers are up, when people are believing and coming for baptism, when the church is sending out missionaries and accomplishing great things in our community, it's easy to think that we're the ones responsible for it. To say, we've done this and we've done that, and to become prideful. To say to, to say to the world, look what we have done. And on the other hand, when things don't seem to go well, when our numbers are small, when we seem to be accomplishing little for the kingdom, it's easy to become discouraged, isn't it? Even to give up or to stop trusting in the power of the word and the spirit to turn worldly means and to, to grow the church ourselves with gimmicks, with things other than word and spirit. Brothers and sisters, Paul reminds us to be humble and to find strength in our weakness because it is only in our weakness that we encounter the grace of God and that we learn to trust in him to bring gospel fruit. And when God does act, it will be in such a way that no one will point to us and say, wow, look what they did. Wow, look what he did. <clears throat> Instead, the world will see our smallness, it will see our powerlessness, it will see our weakness, and it will say, God did that. If the church grows and many trust in Jesus has happened at Pentecost, we will have been privileged to have been used by the Lord. But ultimately, we cannot take the credit because it is his word and spirit that accomplish the work. <clears throat> and on the other hand, if we have been faithful to proclaim his word and to live the life the spirit has given and still can see little fruit and the church remains small, Brothers and sisters, we must continue to trust in him, knowing that his word does not return void. And even if we never see its fruit, trusting that he will without doubt bring that fruit from his word that we proclaim, just as he did through the prophets one time, even though they were rejected in their own day. Brothers and sisters, whatever happens... Whatever fruit we see, whatever fruit we don't see, whether our numbers are big or our numbers are small, we can, we must trust in him and live in hope and know that our work is not in vain so long as we are faithful stewards of his word and of his grace. As he promised, he will send his word out into the world. It will not return to him void. He will make a name for himself amongst the nations. Not a name for us, but a name for himself. And he will be glorified in all the earth. 
we, may we never lose our faith and hope because of weakness, but rather may our weakness always be reason to hope and trust in him all the more. Let's pray. O oh Lord God, you know that we cannot put our trust in anything that we do. Mercifully defend us by your power, we pray, against every adversity. Mercifully fill us, we pray, with your spirit. Mercifully fill us with your grace. Mercifully give us a passion for your word, that in our weakness we may turn to your greatness and proclaim your word. And we pray that you would cause it to return 100-fold as you have promised, that your kingdom would grow, not that we get credit, but that your name would be glorified and that we can have some small part. We thank you. And knowing that someday your glory will fill the earth as as the waters cover the sea. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.